Just gone five minutes past one o'clock. This is Newsbreak on Lotus FM, a very special edition of the program this afternoon. I'm Prabhashni Midli with you until 22 this afternoon. Coming up on the program, Luanda Bota sentenced to three life terms in the Cape Town High Court for the murder and rape of Uinena Mjeriana. Two counts of rape he was convicted on, as well as one count of murder, a count of defeating uh, the, or, uh, the administration of justice. And that, of course, relates to him uh, trying uh, to uh, destroy forensic evidence. South African Airways passengers across the country left stranded and frustrated to finish off with a trip up to Victoria Falls for a couple of days to see, obviously, this iconic sightseeing. Now, because of misinformation and everything else, the whole part of this, this last part of the trip is cancelled. And we continue our extensive coverage of the arrival of 1860 settlers with Dr. Sheetal Bulla, academic at the University of Kuzuda Natal. All that coming up and more in the program between now and 22 this afternoon. For now, though, here's Tashla Naidu with your sport headlines. Tando Mashlangu has won South Africa's second gold medal at the World Para-Athletics Championships in Dubai. Federer outclasses Djokovic while Nadal a short of year-end number one. And Mzanzi Super League brings the heat back to Durban. Stay tuned for the full report. Celebrating 159 years since the arrival of Indians in South Africa. Tomorrow, the 16th of November 2019, will mark 159 years since the arrival of Indian indentured laborers to South Africa. In 1860, the first Indian ship, the SS Truro, arrived in the then port of Natal, bringing along thousands of Indians from the subcontinent. In commemorating this landmark anniversary, Newsbreak has so far this month paid tribute to fallen heroes by telling their remarkable stories. We continue that discussion today with special guest joining Joining us live in studio this afternoon, that's Dr. Sheetal Bulla, academic at the University of KwaZulu-Natal with specialization in sociology and anthropology. She's also, interestingly enough, a finalist in the Women of the Stature Award 2019 in the education sector. Good afternoon, Dr. Bulla. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Bulla, before we head to our top stories for the day, let's just go back 159 years ago. What do we understand as some of the main reasons as to why our ancestors left the Indian subcontinent for South Africa? Well, firstly, we cannot forget, and it's a very sore point going back historically. Our ancestors were lured and misconstrued into believing that they're coming to greener pastures on this side of the world. The white coal, the sugar plantations, everything seemed was put across to them very appealing. And of course, they thought they're going to live a better life on this end. They're going to have better livelihoods. Their families are going to have better livelihoods. They're going to have better quality of life. So arriving here... And in terms of what they were met with upon arrival and what they were promised was completely different from one another. Dr. Sheetal Bulla is here. She's an academic at the University of Kuzuru Natal, just one day ahead of the 159th anniversary. We've got lots to talk about. She will be in studio until about 22 this afternoon. Right now, let's let's focus on some of the struggles um, that they faced at the time and how were these struggles um, and challenges actually overcome? Well, I think, number one, the challenges were numerous. If we go just back to basics in terms of putting bread on the table, economics, and you've got your social and psychological dimensions as well. I mean, the whole feeling of displacement, taken out of your homeland, your home country, um, forced into an area where you've obviously now got to make shift. 
And in, in coupled with all of that as well, what we can admire and really look back and say, wow, is that the strong values of community building, mm-hmm. the, the network, the camaraderie that actually developed from this hardships of scenarios. Indeed. And we see this, of course, twofold when actually they actually went out, put up educational structures, put up places of worship and put up community centers to basically inculcate values of togetherness, create communities for themselves, create a society for themselves mm-hmm. and Dr. support Bola, each other. Mm-hmm. 159 years later, what would you say have been the strides in this community that they've made in, in the different spheres, you know, whether it's government, whether it's education, in business, in academics, in architecture, etc.? What really have been all their successes? Because the truth of the matter is the Indian community is um, spread across different spheres of South Africa. Absolutely. And uh, I must say also we've been impactful in the way we've been influencing the lives of people of different ethnicities and cultures around us. And if we just go back to basics, um, the first basic, if we look at nourishment and food, um, Indian cuisine today is basically consumed by more than just our 3% of Indian descent of population year. Many mm-hmm. South Africans are very fond of Indian cuisine, for instance. And then if we look, for example, in the entrepreneurial world as well, you find businessmen have basically made huge strides in uh, negotiating, taking themselves places in terms of the business world. And not only that, the Indian community itself has been played a pivotal role in internationalization mm-hmm. in relationships with, of course, trade between India and South Africa as well. Mm-hmm. Let's just stay on that point of culinary. I know um, that's something that interests me a great deal. Uh, the South African Indian cuisine is, is quite different, especially if you compare, um, you know, Indian curries in South Africa as compared to Indian curries in, 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 in India itself. Um, but it's something that, as you say, is still prevalent in many homes across, especially KwaZulu Natal. Um, I know there's been a lot of works written specifically about, you know, older Indian men that have been remarkable waiters in many of the really old restaurants uh, in Durban for decades because cuisine is something that's really, really close to the heart of the Indian community. Absolutely. But I think not only cuisine, let's look at the beginnings and the feelings of hospitality and that values of community and being good to each other, being good to people that, of course, this hardship and this diaspora community is inculcated amongst their people. And it came out in the way they entertained their guests in their home to the way they spoke to the person on the road and just generally being kind. And if you go back to the roles the waiters played. So technically speaking, they've been part of the tourism hospitality economy and sector for decades now in this country. And that, of course, is coupled with what you see running in the forefront today. Mm-hmm. Is Durban Indian cuisine being appropriately marketed, especially for Durban, KwaZulu-Natal, as a region for culinary tourism? Mm-hmm. Um, the Banichar, for instance, for example, the birthplace is none other than KZN, Durban, and today it's actually become a global dish. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Let's let's look at um, the the notion of education. We know education is something that the Indian community has always valued, which is why there's always been schools in townships like Phoenix, like Chatsworth and so forth, uh, uh, schools in abundance, actually. What have been the strengths and successes of the Indian community um, that now sees many generations in the upper echelons of society? And, and, and the basis of that was education. 
Absolutely. And I think we've got to go back to the motivation for education. I mean, number one, if you look at the historical disadvantage that the Indian migrants came to South Africa with, of course, you know, you've got your language um, inadequacy, the lack of fully comprehending the English vernacular, which, of course, was dominant here at the time and still is in educational sectors and, of course, all formal sectors of the economy today. Secondly, as well, if you look at the purpose of basically steering ahead in education was to uplift yourself fiscally and socially, of course, Mm -hmm. and mobilization more than anything else. Mm -hmm. And having a better understanding of your world, your surroundings, your communities, of course, would then lead to a better education system, understanding and having educational values, mm-hmm. and of course, understanding people around you and building communities. Mm-hmm. This is Newsbreak on Lotus FM. We're joined in studio by a very special guest this afternoon, Dr. Sheetar Bulla, who's an academic at UKZN, which, whose specialization is in sociology and anthropology. You can send us questions or your comments on the 1860 settlers. Of course, tomorrow is the 159th anniversary of their arrival in Natal. Those comments can be sent to 071-613-7803. One comment already coming through from Louis Pele. He says, Hi Prabhashni. Yes, my great-grandfather, the late Kolapan Raman, who was 25, and my great-grandmother, late Paliam Raman, who was 20, and my grandmother, Nagabu Raman, who was 20, uh, 21, I think, left Madras in the year 1950, in 1895 in a ship called the Pongolo. They are from the Royal Raman family. Very, very interesting indeed, Louis. Lots of stories coming through on the WhatsApp chat. We will get back to that line. Sheetal uh, is our guest joining us in studio today. Sheetal, would you say there's still um, uh, a sense of camaraderie, as you were speaking about earlier, that still prevails within Natal and within the Indian community that's now spread across South Africa? I think the camaraderie, one of the benefits of the camaraderie, I think, was, of course, the displacement, the feelings of being isolated from relatives back home in India. And then, of course, adopting your neighbors and creating kinship amongst those around you. Um, I know, for instances, for example, families that have had no blood relationships with certain people, but because they they shared a certain lineage or descent of coming from a particular same village or area in India, that then became a common denominator amongst them and they regarded each other as family. Today, I think post during the apartheid era as well, the Group Areas Act also inculcated community feelings, community values, um, a sense of demarcation and a sense of identity and belonging. You belong to the community and you belong to that particular ethnic grouping in addition to belonging to the vicinity of where you live. Post-apartheid, I think that's a very difficult one to answer. I think individuals today have basically sustained and maintained their networks and connections that they want to out of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, feelings of communities have basically disintegrated by widespread. And of course, it's also because of globalized factors, factors and migration. I mean, if you look at communities today, if I look, for example, small towns in the country, you find youth today over the ages between 25 and 35 are no longer in the small outskirts of KwaZulu-Natal, the mm-hmm. Eastern Cape, Western Cape. They've had to leave to Kauten for, of course, to progress in their career. So migration has been, of course, an influence over there. You've got globalized ideologies, of course, which also have impacted the whole individualization culture as well, which mm-hmm. goes against that community culture. You know, we spoke with earlier in the week, uh, Judge Navanidham Pillay, and she said something so interesting that actually still remained with me. She said that when her ancestors came to Natal, they, um, they brought with them uh, a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. What um, you know, which is which really uh, speaks to your heart, actually. 
So what I'm trying to ask you is how has the, the culture of the Indian community remained? If we look at the traditions, the practices, the, cu- the customs that our ancestors actually brought with them, um, is it something that has still remained 159 years later? I think the answer is not. And I think firstly, we must never confuse religious practices with cultural practices. They are two different entities. Um, firstly, I think religious practices now have become a choice of individuals, a choice of people as well. Cultural practices, a lot of them have been traditional, have been heritage. And as you find, as our diasporas, of course, have been integrated amongst the various ethnic groupings within the Hindu diaspora, the, the lines are blurred now. Do we then uphold, for example, a South Indian heritage and traditional c- cultural practice? Or do we then uh, uphold, for example, a Gujarati heritage practice in the, in the case of intermarriages and, of course, um, the blending of ethnic groupings within South Africa? Religion, on the other hand, I must also uh, indicate that we've also been influenced by various factors. And I would say modernization, number one. For example, you find certain practices which were very ritualized, very taxing on the female person in the home, for example, within religious practices are now, for example, either minimized or chosen not to basically observe anymore. And this is simply because of logistical reasons. The lady of the house is now working eight to five. She's got to come home, see to her kids, manage her home, cook her meal for her family. And they're actually, people are actually deciding what they want to follow and what they do not want to follow. Mm-hmm. And religion, Hinduism is in particular as well. The way if you look at all the subgroups, if you look at all the subdenominational groups within the country, mm-hmm. um, for example, if you've got your Arya Samaj followers, then you've got your Sanatan Dharma way of life. You've got your divine life. You've got your Radha Krishna. You've got Swaminarayan and you name it. They are all inculcating very similar values. Mm-hmm. But each of them are basically showing Hindus of this country a particular road and a lifestyle that you can then select and say, hey, you know what, this life way of this particular religious sect is going to suit my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I think things have modified and it's also got to do a lot with the socioeconomic influences as well as globalization and migration. Indeed. Let's just go very quickly to our WhatsApp line. The number is 071-613-7803. Another message coming through from Shanti Pillay in Eskom. She says, hi to the team. I'm so proud of my Indian culture. History has taught us of the struggles and hardships our forefathers endured. We all have a sense of pride with our lineage, teaching us culture, religion, and even a strong connection to India. And I pay honor and tribute to our forefathers who paved the way for our freedom with their blood and tears, giving us this beautiful life. I'm a proud Indian. That message coming through from Shanti Pillay in ESCOM. So lots of messages coming through. Keep them coming. We'll try and get through as much as we possibly can. We've just got a few more minutes uh, before we end the show. We're speaking to Dr. Sheetal Bulla, who's an academic at the University of Natal. Doctor, how really can we remember our ancestors? How really can we honor their sacrifices that they made 159 years ago? We know that they um, endured a lot at the hands of their employers at the time. I think we've got to look back and we've got to look upon it as the fact that they have set benchmarks of work ethos. We've got to appreciate the history. There's a very strong work ethos that came with Indian migrants. We all know, for example, if we look at the Indian uncles that were waiters, people of those times were prepared to do absolutely anything. They were did menial tasks. They were janitors, cleaners, what have you. Indeed. People worked two and three jobs. So how to actually pay respects? Let's not forget 
where the heritage began, how the migrants lived, where our forefathers started off, and have a general appreciation for the values and the work ethics that they've instilled in us in generations to come. And more importantly as well, if, you, if they had to just come here, um, not consider future generations, and um, basically go ahead, just work. And then, of course, a lot of them, as you know, have left the country again, went back to India and continued. But they had the foresight to actually put up structures to keep communities and our Indian people together, functional, within a cultural setting, within an educational setting mm-hmm. for decades. Indeed. Doctor, how would you say the Indian community in South Africa have influenced the economy of this country uh, by the influx, for example, of business in the country or by boosting the KZN economy? As you mentioned earlier, foreigners are coming to the city of Durban in particular uh, to taste their Durban bunny chow. And I was watching a documentary, as I mentioned to you earlier uh, this week, and there's actually a restaurant, I think, in in, in Canada, in Ontario, that uh, the, 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 the most popular dish there is a Durban bunny chow. Absolutely. Now you see, Durban Indian Cuisine has been in the forerunning of actually a marketing tool for Durban, Durban South Africa. Hmm. And of course, why not? So huge contribution there to the hospitality and tourism sector. Hmm. And, you know, running parallel to that, we can look at the spice route as well here in Durban as well. I mean, everybody knows you come to Durban, you're going to buy spices. And you're going to get exposed to an influx of Indian culture. You're going to go and go to sari shops, go and experience these things, mm-hmm. have access to Indian eateries, takeaways, snacks, mm-hmm. which, of course, you wouldn't really find um, so prominent in other regions of the country. If you look at, uh, you know, the big businesses, uh, the big business tycoons that have actually started their businesses here in Cape and now have obviously become um, international. How has that drawn more investment uh, and, and boosted this country's economy? Well, number one, of course, they've created further stability in the economy more than anything else. And stability is, of course, inviting for any investor. And not only that, employment, there's ripple effects when it comes to economic stability inputs. There's, of course, job creation. There's uh, input into the immediate environment in terms of, of course, greater jobs, less crime we've got to deal with as well. Mm -hmm. Employing people of all races, of all sexes at different levels, with different skills, at different intervals. And this has been continued for decades. Mm -hmm. So there's been, of course, a long uh, history of income being churning within the economy because of the very strong business inputs within the South African economy. Indeed. Let's just go to our WhatsApp line very quickly. Lots of messages streaming through. Roy Singh from Stanga and Kwadukuza. What an interesting program. What interests me is that our forefathers moved to the South Coast, most on the North Coast. How did they manage to cross rivers knowing it was dangerous? That's an interesting thought, actually. Hi, team. I'm DJ Ragbir of Isipingo Beach. I'm first generation in the Ragbir family. My great-great-grandfather came to South Africa abroad from Kamapara ship and are tracking uh, back to India. We came from the north, namely Rajasthan. More messages coming through. Mohini Karsan from Uteneg says, my grandfather and grandmother from both sides were uh, families from India. They were not afraid to start a new life here in South Africa. We still find that all over the world. I love my country. So lots of messages, lots of contributions coming through on the program but we have unfortunately run out of time. So I want to say a very big thank you to our guest, that's Dr. Sheetal Bulla for joining us live in studio this afternoon and actually making the time to come through and um, educate us, I'd say. 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you uh, very much to our team as well. That's producer Tashan Naidu and Tarish Hari Pashad. I'm Prabhashni Mudli. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your contribution to the program. I leave you with this final excerpt from Othia Sylvia Garib on her latest book, Mothers and Daughters of Indenture. Stay safe on the roads and have a blessed day. While ripping off her clothes, his pants were pulled down to his knees and he was trying to straddle her. In a split second, she knew what his intentions were. She ran towards them and tried to pull him off Arusha, but failed as his weight overpowered her. He covered his left hand on her mouth, and with the other, he tried to part her legs. She looked around frantically and saw Linda cowering against the far wall of the hut. I, I, he, he, were, was, I, she was stuttering uncontrollably from trying to get words out, but all Aradna heard were broken sounds. Linga's eyes were like saucers. It was then that she lost all control and screamed, You brute! You dirty, ugly brute! I cannot get him off her. What must I do? She looked around helplessly and then spotted the sugarcane knife on the floor and brought it down forcefully and repeatedly on his upper torso and jugular vein. The shaking, wriggling, groaning and disbelief in his eyes stopped suddenly as he succumbed to his injuries and lay dead.